Well, hello again. I'm George Sayor, and this is the Presbyterian and Reformed Churchman. On this week's episode, I have something a little bit different for you. You're used to hearing interviews with various ruling elders on various topics relevant to uh, being a ruling elder. But what what I want to do now and for the next two weeks is dive into an event in church history, an event that is history, but it isn't really that long ago. It was only 100 years ago, and that is the fundamentalist modernist controversy. And so many in the Reformed world have made note of or heralded the fact that J. Gresham Machen's famous work, Christianity and Liberalism, turns 100 this year. It was published in 1923. And of course, this being 2023 is the 100th anniversary. Last year was the 100th anniversary of the sermon given by Harry Emerson Fosdick called Shall the Fundamentalists Win? And these two figures really kind of shaped the debate. They became the figureheads of a debate that had been going on for uh, maybe 40 years at that point from the late 1800s into the 1920s and 30s. And really, the ripple effects were still felt into the 70s when the PCA was formed. And so that's why so often Machen is referred to, referenced his work, Christianity and Liberalism, is hailed. People today, when they hear guys like myself want to refer to these events, are uh, they often get angry about it and they want to say, we're not dealing with the same issues. And so I want to say right up front, I know that we in the PCA in particular are not dealing with the exact issue of modernism. I readily know that I don't know of anybody in the PCA that is questioning the miracles of Christ, the inerrancy of Scripture, the penal substitutionary atonement, although I do see some games being played with that doctrine. Uh, So just to set the stage a little bit, modernity and modernism has come into the world. Science is solving a lot of problems. The Enlightenment had happened, and rationalism had sort of taken over. And many people were questioning, can we really believe things like the virgin birth, that a person could be born to a virgin? The miracles of Jesus, are they really true? Of course, this comes uh, at the same time, all kinds of theologies that were questioning these things. So it's coming from within the church. It's coming from the world. Some ways this was expressing itself in Presbyterianism. A a Presbyterian New York had ordained three men who challenged, who didn't agree with the virgin birth of Christ. And so that's why that doctrine, that one miracle is sort of held up as the symbol of this whole thing and becomes part of the five fundamentals. When you hear about fundamentalism, it's tied to this, what is called the five fundamentals. This is 1910. The first one is scripture is inspired and therefore inerrant, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Of course, the virgin birth of Christ must be affirmed. The penal substitutionary atonement uh, must be affirmed. The bodily resurrection of Christ must be affirmed. And the historical reality of Christ's miracles. Those are the five fundamentals. And so this is kind of the what's in the backdrop. And so those five fundamentals, which we would all say are good things, but I think what we lose in this is to strengthen 
the position of things, those things, what I think it does is it really weakens the position of the rest of the standards. It makes it sound as if the rest of the things are not as, in this context, fundamental. I mean, it's interesting. Again, the Trinity is not on the five fundamentals. Isn't that a weird thing? I mean, that seems to be our conception of God is pretty fundamental. But anyway, this were, these were the five basic things they were dealing with at the time, so they chose to address these five things. Also in the backdrop of this, they were trying, many people were trying to change the standards of the church, the, the Westminster Confession of Faith, to make God appear more loving, to make the atonement apply to everybody. It was like a universal atonement. And so you have all this going on. And of course, this made conservative, orthodox believing Christians concerned that we were having these conversations, concerned that people were filling the pulpits, teaching things like Jesus' miracles were just symbolic. They weren't actual, that Christ's bodily resurrection was just symbolic. It wasn't an actual resurrection. And so there was a battle raging. But as Harry Reader, pastor of Briarwood down there in Birmingham, Alabama, has been saying for a number of years that there are some similarities. That is liberalism of 100 years ago and progressivism of today. His famous quote is, they're cut from the same bolt of cloth. And so where the doctrine of scripture that was being challenged 100 years ago was the inspiration and therefore the inerrancy of scripture, what Pastor Reader has often said is what we're facing today is an attack on the sufficiency of Scripture, that Scripture is not enough to deal with, or it doesn't speak to many of the problems that we're seeing today, that we need the social sciences and new developments in the world to, uh, well, in Harry's words, to, to, to save the church from irrelevancy. And that very much is what this is about. Often, Missional impulses and philosophy of ministry is what drives these kinds of things for people to look outside of Scripture or outside of the normal doctrines of the church to try to express relevance to the day. And so in in a desire to kind of save the church, keep it relevant, but also make it appealing to the culture around it, there are often maneuvers and moves that guys like me, guys in my camp, will challenge and say so you you you're you're kind of running afoul of uh important things that we believe in our faith even starting to question them and actually making them be viewed as irrelevant by trying to save the church and keep it relevant it's making much of what the church believes and operates and things like ordinary means of grace ministry irrelevant i also think it's more than the sufficiency of scripture I think it's the perspicuity of Scripture, the clarity of Scripture, that Scripture is clear in the things that it's trying to teach. Now, that doesn't mean it's equally clear on all matters, and we know that. And so it very much is an attack on what we believe rooted in Scripture. So again, 100 years ago, it was inspiration and inerrancy. Right now, I believe it's sufficiency and perspicuity. What do I mean by perspicuity or the clarity? Well, more and more we are we are hearing things like scripture isn't ex- exactly clear on things. It's not clear on things like indwelling sin, identity, women in leadership, women preaching, what preaching is, what worship is. It's not clear on these things and so we're seeing more and more latitude being desired and allowed.
And so just to kick this short little series off, maybe two or three episodes, I want to read Harry Emerson Fosdick's sermon, Shall the Fundamentalist Win? He preached this in New York City in 1922, so 101 years ago. And this will be the uh, the the preface to when we talk about Machen's Christianity and liberalism. I hope to have uh, a guest. I will have a guest for that conversation. So here, finally, after 10-minute introduction, here is Harry Emerson Fosdick's sermon that he preached. It should be noted, Fosdick was a Baptist minister who was the pastor of First Presbyterian Church in New York City. So that should tell you some things already. So here it is, and I'll give commentary. So Fosdick goes, This morning we are to think of the fundamentalist controversy, which threatens to divide the American churches. So isn't that interesting? People standing on what the scriptures say and what our standards say in the doctrines those are the ones that threaten to divide American churches. So you see the rhetoric that's being used, and this is going to be a common theme throughout this. We are to think of the fundamentalist controversy which threatens to divide the American churches as though already they were not sufficiently split and riven. A scene suggestive for our thought is depicted in the fifth chapter of the book of Acts where the Jewish leaders hail before them Peter and, and other of the apostles because they had been, they had been preaching Jesus as the Messiah. Moreover, the Jewish leaders proposed to slay them. When in opposition, Gamaliel speaks, refrain from these men and let them alone. For if the council or this work be of men, it will be overthrown. But it is, if it is of God, yea, will it not be able to overthrow them, lest happily, yea, be found even to be fighting against God. And so what Fosdick is saying is he's comparing the fundamentalists to Judaizers. And to and to Jew well to, in this particular context to Jewish people to actually non Christians, as if what as if it was the same thing going on. One could easily let his imagination play over the scene and could wonder how history would have come out if Gamaliel's wise tolerance could have controlled the situation. For though the Jewish leaders seemed superficially to concur in Gamaliel's judgment, they nevertheless kept up with their bitter antagonism, and shut the Christians from the synagogue. We know now that they were mistaken. So once again, I mean, he's comparing Christians standing on Christian doctrine to non-believers standing on non-believer doctrine. That, that should speak something to you. Christianity, starting within Judaism, was an innovation to be dreaded. It was the finest flowering out that Judaism ever had. When the master looked back across his racial heritage and said, I came not to destroy, but to fulfill, he perfectly described the situation. The Christian ideas of God, the Christian principles of life, the Christian hopes for the future were all rooted in the Old Testament and grew out of it. And the master himself who called the Jewish temple his father's house rejoiced in the glorious heritage of his people's prophets. Only he did believe in a living God. He did not think that God was dead. Having finished his words and works with Malachi, he had not simply an historic but a contemporary God, speaking now, working now, leading his people now from a partial to fuller truth. Jesus believed in the progressiveness of revelation, and these Jewish leaders did not understand that. Was this new gospel a real development which they might welcome, or was it an enemy to be cast out? 
and they called it an enemy and excluded. One does wonder what might have happened had Gamaliel's wise tolerance been in control. So once again, Fosdick here is comparing Judaism with Christianity and acting as if Judaism could have just gotten along with Christianity if, Ju if the Jewish people just had tolerance. Also furthering this idea of God's progressive revelation, which of course we believe that the canon is closed with Jesus Christ. Uh, the book of Hebrews, and you know, in, in former times God spoke by the prophets, but in these last times He has spoken by His Son Jesus. Yes, Jesus is indeed the fulfillment, but that doesn't that doesn't justify a further progressing away from what Jesus taught. So Fosdick goes on. We, however, face today a situation too similar and too urgent and too much in need of Gamaliel's attitude to spend any time making guesses at suppositious history. Already, all of us must have heard about the peoples who call themselves the fundamentalists. Their apparent intention is to drive out of the evangelical churches men and women of liberal opinions. I speak of them more freely because there are no two denominations more affected by them than the Baptist and the Presbyterian, says the Baptist in a Presbyterian church, by the way. We should not identify the fundamentalists with the conservatives. All fundamentalists are conservatives, but not all conservatives are fundamentalists. The best conservatives can often give lessons to liberals in true liberality of spirit, but the fundamentalist program is essentially illiberal and intolerant. The fundamentalists see, and they see truly, that in this last generation there have been a new strange movements in Christian thought. A great mass of new knowledge has come into man's possession— New knowledge about the physical universe, its origin, its forces, its laws. New knowledge about human history, and in particular about the ways in which the ancient peoples used to think in matters of religion and the methods by which they phrased and explained their spiritual experiences. And new knowledge also about other religions and the strangely similar ways in which men's faiths and religious practices have developed everywhere. So this is obviously an argument toward universalism. Look, we have truths being expressed in all these religions. Now there are multitudes of relevant Christians who have been unable to keep this new knowledge in one compartment of their minds and the Christian faith in another. They have been sure that all truth comes from the one God and is his revelation, not therefore from irreverence or caprice or destructive zeal, but for the sake of intellectual and spiritual integrity that they might really love the Lord their God. We can learn from all these religions, he's saying, not only with all their heart and soul and strength, but with all their mind, they have been trying to see this new knowledge in terms of the Christian faith and to see the Christian faith in terms of this new knowledge. Now remember, he's arguing against people as being intolerant because they want to uphold the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ. Because they want to say that Christ actually physically was raised from the dead. You know, kind of like, 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says, if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, actually, we're without hope. So then he goes on, doubtless they have made mistakes. He's talking about the people who have tried to adapt the other religions and philosophy. Doubtless there have been among them reckless radicals gifted with intellectual ingenuity, but lacking spiritual depth. Yet the enterprise itself seems to them indispensable to the Christian church. By the way, doesn't that sound familiar? Like, oh, you know, when we see things going on, in our circles and spheres that the actions of those men and the beliefs of those men are not, there wasn't a problem with what they said or believed. It was just how they went about it. 
Doubtless they have made many mistakes. Doubtless have they been among them reckless radicals, gifted with intellectual ingenuity but lacking spiritual depth. Yet the enterprise itself seems to them indispensable to the Christian church. Haven't we heard that? This is important to the church for us to change our view of anthropology and identity. That was my comment. He goes on, The new knowledge and the old faith cannot be left antagonistic or even disparate. As though a man on Sunday could use one set of regulative ideas for his life and on Sunday could change gear to another altogether. We must be able to think our modern life clear through in Christian terms. And to do that, we also must be able to think our Christian faith clear through in modern terms. Now, some of what he's saying there is good. We have to understand what the culture and the world believes in so much as what they are saying is true. We don't have to reject that. But in so much as it contradicts the clarity, the perspicuity of Scripture, we do reject it. He goes on, it is interesting to note where the fundamentalists are driving in their stakes to mark out the deadline of doctrine around the church across which no one is to pass except on terms of agreement. See, he's he's making them be intolerant. They insist that we must all believe in the historicity of certain special miracles preeminently the virgin birth of our Lord, that we must believe in a special theory of inspiration, a special theory of inspiration, that the original documents of the scripture, which of course we're no lo- we no longer possess, so there he's casting down on what we do possess, were inerrantly dictated to men a good deal as a man might dictate to a stenographer that we must believe in a special theory of the atonement. By the way, I don't, I don't know of anyone that was saying Scripture was inspired like somebody dictating to to them. Um, I, don't, I don't really think that was a prominent view. I think it's straw man that he's making there. Uh, that we must believe in a special theory of the atonement. <laughs> Not a special theory, Fosdick. In the atonement. To make atonement. That the blood of our Lord shed in a substitutionary death placates an alienated deity and makes possible welcome for the returning sinner and that we must believe in the second coming of our Lord upon the clouds of heaven to set up a millennium here as the only way in which God can bring history to a worthy denouement. Such are some of the stakes which are being driven to mark a deadline of doctrine around the church. And so you see he he just listed the five fundamentals. He goes on. If a man is a genuine liberal, his primary protest is not against holding these opinions, Although he may well protest against their being considered the fundamentals of Christianity, this is a free country, and anybody has a right to hold these opinions or any others if he is sincerely convinced of them. The fact, by the way, comment, the fact that this is a free country, he's absolutely right. Anybody can hold any views they want. We're not talking about the country, we're talking about the church. The question is, has anybody a right to deny the Christian name to those who differ with him on such points and to shut out against them the doors of Christian fellowship? That is indeed the question. And I think the apostles clearly say, yes, we are always told to watch out for sheep in wolf's clothing, uh, wolf in sheep clothing, excuse me, (laughs) and to send them out of the church, to have no fellowship with them. But of course, if you don't believe that the scriptures are inspired, you don't have to believe that. The fundamentalists say that this must be done. In this country and on the foreign field, they are trying to do it. They've actually endeavored to put on the statute books 
of a whole state binding laws against teaching modern biology. If they had their way within the church, they would set up in a Protestantism a doctrinal tribunal more rigid than the Pope's. In such an hour, delicate and dangerous when feelings are bound to run high, I plead this morning the cause of magnanimity and liberality and tolerance of spirit. I would, if I could, reach their ears, say to the fundamentalists about the liberals what Gamaliel said to the Jews, refrain from these men and let them alone, for if this counsel or this work be of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, lest happily you be found even to be fighting against God. He goes on, that we may be entirely candid and concrete and may not lose ourselves in any fog of generalities. Let us this morning take two or three of these fundamental items and see with reference to them what the situation is in the Christian churches. Too often we preachers have failed to talk frankly enough about the differences of opinion which exist among evangelical Christians. I agree. Again, side note, but so often we keep hearing today, we agree, we agree, we agree, we agree, let's apply our AIC report. We agree, let's follow the BCO. We agree on the standards. And then you start talking to them and you under, you realize that we actually don't agree on what the AIC report fundamentally says. We don't agree on how to follow the BCO in specific things. We don't agree with what the standards teaches on many things. And so saying we agree really isn't solving the problem. We may well begin with the vexed and mooted question of the virgin birth of our Lord. I know people in the Christian churches, ministers, missionaries, laymen, devoted lovers of the Lord and servants of the gospel, who, alike as they are in their personal devotion to the master, hold quite different points of view about a matter like the virgin birth. And again, I fully recognize I don't. there's nobody in the PCA questioning the virgin birth or the miracles of Christ. Again, the issues are different, but the arguments are the same. Here, for example, is one point of view that the virgin birth is to be accepted as a historical fact. It actually happened. There was no other way for a personality like the master to come into this world except by a special biological miracle. That is one point of view. And many are the gracious and beautiful souls who hold it. But side by side with them in the evangelical church is a group of equally loyal and reverent people who would say that the virgin birth is not to be accepted as a historic fact. To believe in virgin birth as an explanation of great personality is one of the familiar ways in which the ancient world was accustomed to account for unusual superiority. Many people suppose that only once in history do we run across a record of a supernatural birth. Upon the contrary, stories of miraculous generation are among the commonest traditions of antiquity. Especially is this true about the founders of great religions according to the records of their faiths, Buddha, Zoroaster, Lao Tzu, I might be saying that wrong, I probably am, and Mahavira were all supernaturally born. Moses, Confucius, and Muhammad are the only great founders of religions in history to whom miraculous birth is not attributed. That is to say, when a personality arose so high that men adored him, the ancient world attributed his superiority to some divine influence in his generation, and they commonly phrased their faith in terms of a miraculous birth. So Pythagoras, who was called virgin-born, and Plato, and Augustus Caesar, and many more. Knowing this, 
There are within the evangelical circles large groups of people whose opinion about our Lord's coming would run as follows. Those first disciples adored Jesus as we do. Then they thought about his coming. They were sure that he came specially from God as we are. This adoration and conviction they associated with God's special influence and intention in his birth as we do. But they phrased it in terms of biological miracle that our modern minds cannot use. So you see, there's an automatic ruling out of the supernatural. So far from thinking that they have given up anything vital in the New Testament's attitude toward Jesus, these Christians remember that the two men who contributed most of the church's thought of the divine meaning of the Christ were Paul and John, who never even distantly allude to the virgin birth. That is simply not true. Uh, John was said to refer to it in his gospel when they accused Jesus of saying, when they said, we know who our father is, it was an implicit reminder to the readers that Christ that there was quest, Christ was born through questionable means. Here in the Christian churches, there are two groups of people, and the questions which the fundamentalist raises is this. Shall one of them throw the other out? Has intolerance any contribution to make to this situation? Will it persuade anybody of anything? Is not the Christian church large enough to hold within her hospitable fellowship people who differ on points like this? And agree to differ until the fuller truth be manifested? The fundamentalists say not. They say the liberals must go. Well, if the fundamentalists should succeed, then out of the Christian church would go some of the best Christian life and consecration of this generation. Multitudes of men and women, devout and reverent Christians, who need the church and whom the church needs. Goes on. Consider another matter on which there is sincere difference of opinion between evangelicals Christians. The inspiration of the Bible. One point of view is that the original documents of the scripture were inerrantly dictated by God to men. Whether we deal with the story of creation or the list of the dukes of Edom or the narratives of Solomon's reign or the Sermon on the Mount or the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians, they all came in the same way. They all came as no other book ever came. They were inerrantly dictated. Again, maybe, maybe people then were making that argument. I haven't researched it, but that is not the long-standing understanding of this, teaching of this, tradition of it, or any of it. Everything there, scientific opinions, medical theories, historical judgments, as well as spiritual insight is infallible. We do believe they were inherently inspired and they are infallible. That's different than saying they were dictated. That is one idea of the Bible's inspiration. But side by side with those who hold it, lovers of the book, as much as they are multitudes of people who never think about the Bible so. Indeed, that static and mechanical theory of inspiration seems to them a positive peril to the spiritual life. The Quran similarly has been regarded by Mohammedans as having been infallibly written in heaven before it came to earth. But the Quran enshrines the theological and ethical ideas of Arabia at the time when it was written. God, an oriental monarch, fatalistic submission to his will as man's chief duty, the use of force on unbelievers, polygamy, slavery, they are all in the Quran. That, that is a hugely... So this is George speaking again, a hugely um, simplistic view that the Quran simply embodies, enshrines the theological and ethical ideas of Arabia. If that were so, if it were that simple, that the Quran simply explained what was going on in the region at the time, people would have accepted it and Muhammad wouldn't have to make people convert by the, at the tip of the, the sword. And that's not just, you know, Christians and Jews, it, 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 other tribal religions that rejected this. He says, the Quran was ahead of the day when it was written, but petrified by an artificial idea of inspiration, it has become a millstone around the neck of Muhammad, Muhammadanism. 
that he's actually holding up the virtue of the Quran. When one turns from the Quran to the Bible, he finds the, this interesting situation. All these ideas, which we just like in the Quran, are somewhere in the Bible. Conceptions from which we now send missionaries to convert Mohammedans are to be found in the book. So again, this is this implicit sort of universalism that he's talking about. There one can find God thought of as an oriental monarch. There too are patriarchal polygamy and slave systems and the use of force on unbelievers. Only in the Bible these elements are not final. They are always being superseded. Revelation is progressive. The thought of God moves out from the oriental kingship to compassionate fatherhood. Treatment of unbelievers moves out from the use of force to the appeals of love. Polygamy gives way to monogamy. Slavery, never explicitly condemned before the New Testament closes, is nevertheless being undermined by ideas in the end, like dynamite will blast its foundation to pieces. It, it, that is true. That is the effect of leaven on the earth. That is the smallest seed becoming the greatest, you know, largest tree, the kingdom of God. This is George speaking. That, what I'm saying, that is true. What he's saying there is is true, that... We see as God's revelation progresses through Scripture that more and more uh, goodness and truth is being revealed to the world. And then, then the canon closes. And Revelation says that. Book of Hebrews says that. We see that. And it's because of the prophecies of Christ of things like the kingdom being like leaven in the world or the kingdom being like a small seed that expands to a large tree in the world. So the principles, the foundations of Scripture go out into the world through as the kingdom of God spreads, his goodness reforms the world, not because, again, we're seeking necessarily to reform the world, but as people are converted, Christians go and reform the world. So I, I, there's no disagreement there, but that's not further revelation. When Paul writes uh, to Philemon, all the basis for the abolition of slavery is found there. He goes on. Repeatedly, one runs on verses like this. It was said to them of old time, but I say unto you, God having of old spoken unto the fathers and the prophets by divers portions and in divers manners, has at the end of these days spoken unto us in his son. So yeah, he's quoting Hebrews. He's not doesn't reference Hebrews, but he's quoting Hebrews. Exactly. In these last times, he has finally spoken to us in his son. And then Revelation says nothing is to be added to the book. And of course, that's at the end of Revelation. But we take that as, as nothing's to be added to Scripture in general. Christ is the Lagos, the word of God. So he is the final revelation. And he has given us his spirit to, by which to interpret Revelation by, the Scriptures by. Uh, he goes on, the times of ignorance, therefore God overlooked, but now he commands men that they should all everywhere repent. Yeah, at the gospel message. Absolutely, of course. And over the doorway of the New Testament into the Christian world stand the words of Jesus. When he, the spirit of truth, is come, he shall guide you into all the truth. It's a typical liberal position. I mean, it's like funny, like he, he's not willing to accept the virgin birth or what the apostles say about false teachers or any of that, but he's willing to take these verses and, and apply them, rip them out of context and apply them into his context. Goes on, that is to say, finality in the Quran is behind, finality in the Bible is ahead. You see what he just said? That because we have things revealed in the New Testament that bring to consummation all that the Lord has said, finding their 
origination and consummation in Jesus Christ, that that means that the canon is somehow open, that there's further revelation in the world. I mean, that's that's an absurd argument to be making from those verses or from any understanding of the scriptures. He says, God is leading us toward it. There are multitudes of Christians then who think and rejoice as they think of the Bible as the record of progressive unfolding of the character of God to his people from early primitive days until the great unveiling in Christ. To them, the book is more inspired and more inspiring than it ever was before. And to go back to a mechanical and static theory of inspiration would mean to them the loss of some of the most vital elements in their spiritual experience and in their appreciation of the book. Here in the Christian church today, are these two groups. And the question which the fundamentalists have raised is this, shall one of them drive the other out? Do we think the cause of Jesus Christ will be furthered by that? If he should walk through the ranks of his congregation this morning, can we imagine him claiming as his own those who hold one idea of inspiration and sending from him into outer darkness those who hold another? You cannot fit the Lord Jesus Christ into the fundamentalist mold. The church would better judge his judgment. For in the Middle West... The fundamentalists have had their way in some communities, and Christian ministers tell us the consequences. He says that the educated people are looking for their religion outside the churches. And we're hearing that argument more and more today. That sophisticated people, elites in cities, can't accept Christianity as it is, so we have to make it palatable for them. And I know they don't use that word palatable. Okay. Consider another matter upon which there is a serious and sincere difference of opinion between evangelical Christians, the second coming of our Lord. The second coming was the early Christian phrasing of hope. No one in the ancient world had ever thought, as we do, of development, progress, gradual change as God's way of working out his will in human life and institutions. They thought of human history as a series of ages, succeeding one another with abrupt suddenness. The Greco-Roman world gave the names of metal to the ages, gold, silver, bronze, iron. The Hebrews had their ages too. The original paradise in which man began, the cursed world in which man now lives, the blessed messianic kingdom someday suddenly to appear in the clouds of heaven. It was the Hebrew way of expressing hope for the victory of God and righteousness when the Christians came. They took over the phrase of expectancy and the New Testament is aglow with it. The preaching of the apostles thrills with the glad announcement Christ is coming. Yeah, and Paul wrote whole letters about this. First and Second Thessalonians, again, we see it in First Corinthians 15, where Paul promises this is not what this guy here, Fosdick, is saying, that it is an actual resurrection, an actual coming, and an actual kingdom, physically. John, who we quoted earlier, as if John would argue against the virgin birth, says, repeatedly talks over and over about Christ coming in the flesh. John's Gospel shows Christ eating with the disciples, Thomas touching Jesus in the flesh. I mean, these are old Gnostic ideas that, that Fosdick is, is peddling, and that's no surprise. This has always been the thing, that it's not the physical uh, manifestations of these things here in the physical world. There's sort of deeper truth to it, and if we can only just unlock this deeper truth and, and stop with these silly ideas of what's going on physically, we'll see what's really going on here. It's... Platonism, it's Gnosticism, it's Eastern mysticism, it, it's all of it. And there's no wonder why Foz, uh, Fosdick, you know, think it's a great thing that the, you know, these other traditions we can learn from. He goes on, in the evangelical churches today, there are differing views of this matter. One view is that the kingdom is literally coming externally on the clouds of heaven to set up his kingdom here. 
I never heard that teaching in my youth at all. It was always, it always had a new resurrection when desperate circumstances came and man's only hope seemed to lie in divine intervention. It is not strange then that during these chaotic, catastrophic years, there's been a fresh rebirth of this old phrasing of expectancy. Christ is coming. Seems to many Christians the central message of the gospel. In the strength of it, some of them are doing great service for the world. But unhappily, many so overemphasize it that they outdo anything the ancient Hebrews or the ancient Christians ever did. They sit still and do nothing and expect the world to grow worse and worse until he comes. Here's where I'm going to say what Fosdick is saying here is there's some truth to it. And that's why what what happens is oftentimes in error, there's, there's truth that's being noticed, represented. What he's saying is with these Christians sitting around while society goes to hell and things get worse in the world and, you know, don't they act like, again, they're acting like Gnostics, like none of this matters and crisis is coming back. And so that's all I have to care about. And so, you know, many of the many people in liberalism and in this controversy actually care about what happens here. And they look at Christians and they say, you all don't care. You just want Jesus to come back. Meanwhile, people are suffering and all that. Hence, this progresses to what? The social justice movement, right? And so, I mean, Christians are to care about what happens to neighbor. Love God, love neighbor, right? We are to care about the environment. We are to care about these things. I mean, that's, the, that's the mandate in Genesis. Uh, Genesis 1 and 2, to be fruitful and multiply, fill and subdue the earth. Like, we are supposed to care about those things. And then the Great Commission comes, and it doesn't... Uh, yeah, it reshapes that, but it doesn't do away with that. You are the light of the world, Jesus says. Let let the world, let that light shine. Let them see your good works so they give glory to your God in heaven. The, the problem is when people make their good works all about what the gospel is. No, the gospel is about changing hearts because the king has come and he's bringing people into his kingdom and we want that kingdom to expand. And as it expands, we're doing good in the world. So what Fosdick is noticing here, I don't, I don't think is wrong, but his his solution is is wrong. It, he, it's a false dichotomy. He he, you either care about the world, and if you care about the world, you can't believe what Scripture teaches literally, because the world is teaching against those things. It goes on side by side with these to whom the second coming is a literal expectation. Another group exists in the evangelical churches. They too say Christ is coming. They say it with all their hearts. But they are not thinking of an external arrival on the clouds. They have assimilated as part of the divine revelation, the exhilarating insight, which these recent generations have given to us, that development is God's way of working out his will. They see that the most desirable elements in human life have come through the method of development. Man's music is developed from rhythmic noise of beaten sticks until we see in melody and harmony possibilities once undreamed. Man's painting has developed from the crude outlines of cavemen until in line and color we have achieved unforeseen results and possess latent beauty yet unfolded. Man's architecture has developed from the crude huts of primitive men until our cathedrals and business buildings reveal alike an incalculable advance and an unimaginable future. Development does seem to be the way in which God works. By the way, all those developments came through Christianity and the church. I'm not saying that Things haven't happened through common grace and other cultures that were non-Christian, but everything he just listed there came through the explosion of, of, of the kingdom of God. 
And I think that's probably the point he's making. Development does seem to be the way in which God works. And these Christians, when they say that Christ is coming, mean that. Slowly it may be, but surely his will and principles will be worked out by God's grace and human life and institutions until he shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. I think we're hearing that message today, by the way. And again, some of that is not wrong. These two groups exist in Christian churches, and the question raised by the fundamentalist is, shall one of them drive the other out? Will that get us anywhere? Multitudes of young men and women at this season of the year. I think this is really where I think we're going to hear more elements of today. Because again, the issue, like I, th- I hope what we've read so far, your thought is, well, how, c- how is he arguing against inspiration and i mean he made his arguments right about against the virgin birth and the miraculous and everything has like is like allegorical essentially and we need to do that to harmonize modern scientific life with the antiquity of the bible i mean that's that's what he's saying and i know everybody listening most people listening to this are going to be pca people so you all think that's what he we're all in disagreement about what he's saying but his overarching thesis is can't we coexist right and so that's where i think we need to be looking can we coexist with people who hold these differences within i guess he's saying broadly christianity he's highlighted the baptists and the pentecost uh the pentecost the presbyterians and of course there's this move toward ecumenism uh and you know, and in our in our circles, we're talking about reformed Catholicity, right? Like the the ability to hold a wide range of views, a big tent um, within certain groups of doctrines within the PCA, but then expand that beyond outside the PCA, and we can partner with other quote unquote Christians as Christians doing, and and certainly we we partner, you know, with Baptists. We believe that infant baptism is. Uh, you know, it's part of covenant theology. It's a part of the covenant community. It's it's God's will for families in the covenant community. It's how God works, and Baptists don't. And yet, we can partner with them. Uh, you can't be a pastor in a PCA if you don't believe in infant baptism. But pastors in the PCA can partner with Baptists outside the PCA, and those differences are understood. Absolutely. The question is, how far can those differences go before you can't? lock arms with certain people what is the what doctrines and doctrinal positions are okay so we go on these two groups exist in the christian churches and the question raised by the fundamentalists is shall one of them drive out the other will that get us anywhere multitudes of young men and women at this season of the year who are graduating from our schools of learning thousands of them christians who may make us older ones ashamed by the sincerity of their devotion to god's will on the earth they are not thinking in ancient terms that leave ideas of progress out they cannot think in those terms they could be there could be no greater tragedy than that their fundamentalists should shut the door of the christian fellowship against such and so these are the arguments we're we're hearing we are hearing today again about different issues I do not believe for one moment that the fundamentalists are going to succeed. Nobody's intolerance can contribute anything to the solution of the situation which we have described. If then the fundamentalists have no solution of the problem, where may we expect to find it? In two concluding comments, let us consider our reply to that 
inquiry. And so you see the word intolerant being used against people in the church. <laughs> yeah, it is intolerant. <laughs> Truth by definition is intolerant and denying the essentially denying the deity of Christ. I mean, when you deny the virgin birth and the bodily resurrection of Jesus, you're denying the deity of Christ. I mean, that's where that leads when you're denying the miracles of Christ and all that. Yeah, that's, that is a dividing line. That is an intolerant thing. Truth by definition is intolerant. So he, here's what he prescribes. The first element that is necessary is a spirit of tolerance and Christian liberty. We're hearing that now, uh, by the way. When will the world learn that intolerance solves no problems? This is not a lesson which the fundamentalists alone need to learn. The liberals also need to learn it. Speaking as I do from the viewpoint of liberal opinions, let me say that if some young, fresh mind here this morning is holding new views, new ideas, has fought his way through, and may be by intellectual and spiritual struggle to novel positions and is tempted to be intolerant about old opinions, offensively to condescend to those who hold them and to be harsh in judgment on them, he may well remember that people who held these those old opinions have given the world some of the noblest character and the most rememberable service that it ever has been blessed with, and that we of the younger generation will prove our case best, not by controversial intolerance, but by producing with our new opinions something of the depth and strength, nobility and beauty of the character that in other times were associated with other thoughts. It was a wise liberal, the most adventurous man of his day, Paul the Apostle, who said, knowledge puffeth up, but love buildeth up. <laughs> so calling Paul a liberal. I don't know in what sense they're using the word liberal there, but I think that's pretty hysterical. Um, nevertheless, it is true that just now the fundamentalists are giving us one of the worst exhibitions of bitter intolerance that the churches of this country have ever seen. As one watches them and listens to them, he remembers the remark of General Armstrong of Hampton Institute, cantankerousness is worse than heterodoxy. There are many opinions in the field of modern controversy concerning which I am not sure whether they are right or wrong, but there is one thing I am sure of. Courtesy and kindness and tolerance and humility and fairness are right. Opinions may be mistaken, but love never is. And so, you know, we, we would agree. I mean, it's, it's not an either or. You, it's not like be cantankerous or be heterodox. It's be neither. Um, support heterodoxy or be cantankerous? No. Yes. Uh, courteousness and kindness and tolerance and humility and fairness are right. Yeah, absolutely. Of course. But we can argue against error. And we're seeing these same arguments today. Again, not for those issues, but this argumentation saying that what they're saying is good about the fundamentalists and then taking it away on their intolerance, the fact that they're standing too rigidly for things and then arguing for courtesy, kindness, tolerance, humility, fairness, love, uh, obviously, like as if we're arguing against those things. As I plead thus for an intellectually hospitable, tolerant, liberty-loving church, I am, of course, thinking primarily about this new generation. We have boys and girls growing up in our homes and schools, and because we love them, we well wonder about the church which will be waiting to receive them. Now, the worst kind of church that can possibly be offered to the allegiance of the new generation is an intolerant church. Ministers often bewail the fact that the young people turn from religion to science for the regulative ideas of their lives, but this is 
easily explicable. Science treats a young man's mind as though it were really important. A scientist says to a young man, here's the universe challenging our investigation. Here are the truths which we have seen so far. Come, study with us. See what we have already seen and then look further to see more. For science is an intellectual adventure for the truth. Can you imagine any man who is worthwhile turning from that call to the church if the church seems to him to say, come and we will feed your opinions from a spoon. Feed you opinions from a spoon. No thinking is allowed here except such as brings you to certain specified predetermined conclusions. These prescribed opinions we will give you in advance of your thinking. Now think, but only so as to reach these results. My friends, nothing in all the world is so much worth thinking of as God, Christ, the Bible, sin, salvation, the divine purposes for humankind, life everlasting. But you cannot challenge the dedicated thinking of this generation to these sublime themes upon any such terms as are laid down by an intolerant church. You know, again, he's saying he's saying actually some some good things here. The problem is that he's attributing this negatively as if his opponents would disagree with this. I I do think the church has done a disservice to young people by not explaining why we believe what we believe to them by just saying, just believe this. I mean, Paul doesn't do that. The gospels don't do that. So, yeah, if if that's what was going on, that's that's a problem. The answer is not to embrace heterodoxy. It's not to embrace that the scriptures aren't real and Jesus' miracles aren't real and he didn't die for the, the sins of 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 uh, only his people and, and those things. That's not the answer. The answer is that we need to do a better job of discipleship. But he sets out and he creates, again, these, these false dichotomies. Because this is going on, ergo, we're, what I'm proposing is right, which which means just don't matter what you believe. And so I, I, when he says, my friends, nothing in all the world is so much worth thinking of as God, Christ, the Bible, sin and salvation, the divine purposes of man, humankind, life everlasting. On what basis? On what basis is he saying those things? And what we have to remember about this is the discourse had gotten heated and he's just, he's talking against intolerance. But at the root underneath it, this is a different worldview. It's a different presupposition. Their presupposition is against supernaturalism. If you already decide there's nothing supernatural occurring in the world, in the physical material world, that it's all just a spiritual reality, that it's not a physical reality that the supernatural enters in and changes things and does things, of course you're going to end up with a Bible that's not supernatural. In other words, he's guilty of, of doing the same things of that the church is doing in holding to their doctrines as the ground. The, the, the thing is, what is the ground of your assumptions? So he's mocking the ground of of the Bible's assumptions because we know some things about ancient peoples and ancient cultures that they must not, you know, this must be invented. Well, yeah, you're starting with the presupposition that it's not supernatural. You're ending up with the result that it's not supernatural. So what he's attacking in conservatives, he's guilty of doing in his position. But again, the overarching theme of his paper is not to not believe in the inspiration of Scripture. He's arguing not that you believe their position on this, but that you allow their position on this. And so understand what he's doing, because that's what's happening in the disagreements in the PCA. Many of the people in the PCA that are doing things that those of us view are a violation of our standards 
are not arguing for their position on the thing. They're arguing that their position be allowed to occur alongside our position. They're, they're arguing for latitude. That's, that's the, the argument. Those that have unordained diaconates so they can have men and women deacons commissioned are not asking us to have unordained diaconates and commission both men and women. They just want their view to be allowed and tolerated and viewed as valid. And if we say, but you're withholding the office of, of the ordained office of deacon to men that the Lord has called to do that because you're trying to adopt an egalitarian position is that is actually wrong. They're, now I'm intolerant because, because I've said that. Or they're not saying that you or I in our churches have to have women giving the sermon, but calling it a teaching instead of a sermon. They just want the ability for them to do it. See, see they're arguing for latitude. They're not arguing for us to adopt their position. Believe me, they would like us to adopt their position. And the same way Fosdick has said, but we, we want to present that sort of as a positive, beautiful vision for what we want. That's not their concern. They want to be allowed to do it without being called out for it. And they hope that as things progress, their view will progress and, and, and inf influence more and more of the church to adopt their view. We're almost done. A couple more paragraphs. The second element which is needed if we are to reach a happy solution of this problem is a clear insight into the main issues of modern Christianity and a sense of penitent shame that the Christian church should be quarreling over little matters when the world is dying of great needs. So remember, little matters. What, what are the little matters that he's talking about? Whether or not Christ <laughs> was born by the Holy Spirit, whether or not Scripture was written by the Holy Spirit, <laughs> Whether or not Christ did miracles, whether or not Christ bodily rose, little matters we're quibbling over. And we're told that today, again, different issues, um, you know, that the whole side B gay Christianity thing is, is a big one. Like this, this is, these are not, there are big problems in the world that we should be talking about. There's race relations to be talking about and abuse allegations to be investigating and inequity in the world and lost people to reach. And, and amen. It's not that we just do this and not that. The amount of times that Paul, Peter, Jude, John, and others talk against false teaching and false teachers. Read, read the seven churches of Revelation. It's not an either or. If during the war, when the nations were wrestling upon the very brink of all hell and at all times seemed lost, you... Chance to hear two men in an altercation about some minor matter of sectarian denominationalism. Could you restrain your indignation? You said, what can you do with folks like this who, in the face of colossal issues, play with the tiddlywinks and peccadillos of religion? So now, when from the terrific questions of this generation, one is called away by the noise of this fundamentalist controversy, he thinks it almost unforgivable that men should tithe mint and anise and cumin and quarrel over them when the world is perishing for the lack of the weightier meritors of the law, justice, and mercy, and faith. So have we heard that anywhere? These last weeks in the minister's confessional, I've heard stories from the depths of human lives where men and women are wrestling with the elemental problems of misery and sin, stories that put upon a man's heart a burden of vicarious sorrow, even though he does but listen to them. Here was real human need crying out after all the living God revealed in Christ. Consider all the multitudes of men who so need God 
and then think of Christian churches making of themselves a cockpit of controversy when there is not a single thing at stake in the controversy on which depends the salvation of human souls. Get that. He says there's not a single thing at stake in the controversy on which depends the salvation of human souls. Uh, How about the penal substitutionary atonement for one? (laughs) How are people made right with God, right? But of course, I don't know for sure, but I'm sure Fosdick, I would guess Fosdick is one of the ones who was trying to change the Westminster standards to, to include things like Christ's atonement paid the price for everybody. So yeah, doctrinal issues don't matter to him. He says, and that is the trouble with this whole business. So much of it does not matter. I heard these debates, by the way, going on as we've been debating for five years. The side B issues that the PCA has been embroiled in with revoice to redefining sanctification, redefining the nature of what it means to be a human anthropology saying things that make it seem like progressive sanctification doesn't happen. <laughs> like those things don't, don't really matter. What matters is people are hurting. People need Jesus. Great commission is go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I've commanded you. Jesus commanded a lot. And there's one thing that does matter more than anything else in the world. The men in their personal lives and in their social relationships relationships should know Jesus Christ. Amen. What Jesus do you want them to know? A Jesus that did no miracles, wasn't born of the virgin, didn't rise bodily, and didn't die for their sins particularly? <laughs> How do you know Jesus? That's not the Jesus of Paul. Unbelievable. Just a week ago, I received a letter from a friend in Asia Minor. He says that they are killing the Armenians yet, that the Turkish deportations still are going on, that lately they crowded Christian men, women, and children into a conventicle of worship and burned them together in the house where they had prayed to their father and to ours. During the war, when it was good propaganda to stir up our bitter hatred against the enemy, we heard of such atrocities, but not now. Two weeks ago, Great Britain, shocked and stirred by what is going on in Armenia, did ask the government of the United States to join her in investigating the atrocities and trying to help. Our government said that it was not only not any of our business at all. The present world situation smells to heaven now. And now, in the presence of colossal problems, which must be solved in Christ's name and for Christ's sake, the fundamentalists propose to drive out from the Christian churches all the consecrated souls who do not agree with their theory of inspiration. It's just a theory. What immeasurable folly. By the way, what he just said is actually speaks to my heart i'm of syrian descent my father's parents my mother's grandparents emigrated here from syria but my dad's mother uh was armenian even though she lived in aleppo syria and uh to our family there were there there is an armenian heritage and the armenian holocaust is not a well-known thing in history at all there were more people slaughtered and executed than in the holocaust in world war ii uh so I, i i do care about those things Again, it's not an either or. Uh, he goes on. This is, we're finishing here. Well, they are not going to do it. Certainly not in this vicinity. I do not even know in this congregation whether anybody has been tempted to be a fundamentalist. Never in this church have I caught one accent of intolerance, 
God, keep us always so in ever-increasing areas of Christian fellowship, intellectually hospitable, open-minded, liberty-loving, fair, intolerant, not with the tolerance of indifference, as though we did not care about the faith, but because always our major emphasis is upon the weightier matters of the law. Here's a prayer. I'm not going to read the prayer. So that's Fosdick's sermon. A year later, uh, J. Gresham Machen would write Christianity and Liberalism. And so uh, the modernists are, of course, the liberalism in Christianity. And we'll look at that hopefully next week or the week after and kind of talk about where there are similarities from 100 years ago and where there are differences. I want to state again, I stated at the beginning, I stated throughout, and I'm stating again, I understand that nobody in the PCA that I know of are questioning the five fundamentals that, you know, it's it's not the same issue. The The issue right now is not inspiration and inerrancy, but it is sufficiency, and I believe it's perspicuity. And I think a lot of the games that we're seeing in the PCA around our standards are because what's being applied is there's ambiguity in these things. There's ambiguity about women in leadership and what that really means. There's ambiguity about, you know, how a Christian is to refer to themselves and view their being. We're not, we're not clear on these things. There's ambiguity about whether or not we could have women deacons. And so, uh, or, and, and even women pastors, because some PCA churches have women pastors from other denominations giving sermons in their, in their churches. Uh, they're not calling them sermons, even though it's during the worship service. But it is—it's at the place where word is is being preached. And so, you know, I, I do think when people say the issue right now is not as serious, liberalism is far worse than progressivism. You know, I question that. I think liberalism is an honest position to hold. You might be surprised for me to say that. It, it's a question of belief, right? And people don't believe. And so, I mean, is there any surprise that people are going to be honest about the fact that they don't believe that Jesus was born of a virgin, that the miracles happened, that, you know, God sent his son, the father sent the son to die on behalf of sinners and to particularly redeem those and apply that death to their lives, that the miracles of Christ happened or didn't happen is, is like to say, I don't believe those happened. I believe that's an honest position. So I actually believe liberalism is, is an honest position. I think they're wrong, but it's, it's actually a sincerely held belief of theirs. I think progressivism is far more insidious because it, it plays word games See, if, if the controversy 100 years ago was the modernist controversy, what we have now is the postmodernist controversy. And the postmodernist controversy is all about deconstruction. And there are many, many men who have adopted this. And deconstructionism begins with language. I mean, that's where, that's where it showed up first and most in the 60s and 70s in the writings of Derrida and others. And so... You know, to deconstruct what the scripture says allows and enables somebody to say, I believe in inspiration and I believe in inerrancy. And then to so hyper contextualize what a passage is about that you strip it of its actual universal meaning. 
I think that's going on. And that's a far more dangerous position than somebody say the miracles of Christ didn't happen because we can refute that. We can say, no, the miracles of Christ did happen. So there's the difference of position. You believe they didn't happen and I believe they did happen. But we, so you don't believe that the Bible is inerrant, inspired, and clear. But the postmodern position, the progressive position that we have to, that scripture is not clear on certain things, that we have to interpret these things, that there's multiple valid interpretations that can coexist. And by the way, coexist in such a way to be so contradictory as to actually uh, call into question if there's actually a Christian belief on this is a dangerous position. Because if you can redefine what those mean, you could redefine every doctrine of the faith. And so it leads to the same place as liberalism. And so, you know, I, I first noticed this about probably close to 15 years ago where, it, you know, so, so boots on the ground. It used to be that in the issue of homosexuality, you know, you would have to deny the inerrancy of Scripture to affirm whether or not it's okay to act out homosexual behavior, you know, the, the, to live out the desires that you have. You Because you, there was never a question that the Bible spoke against homosexuality. And so it was a clear position. I don't believe what the Bible says on that, somebody would have to say. But we saw a shift around 2000, between 2008 and 2012, I don't remember when, with Matthew Vines and the, the gay Christian and, and others. What they did is they took those five or six clobber texts they talk about, the, the, the texts that explicitly speak against homosexuality, and they explained them away. And what that did is it set the groundwork for a hermeneutic that allows somebody to say, I believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. The problem is not what the Bible means. The problem is we've misunderstood what it means. And so, yes, I know nobody in the PCA that I know of is is arguing for anything other than the biblical sexual ethic as it is lived out in in uh, physically. I, I get that. I get there's people not making the argument that living out their homosexuality is okay in, in the PCA. I, I, I haven't come across that. However, it's just one step down. There There are many in the PCA who have hosted conferences that say it's fine, though, to adopt that identity, lifestyle, and everything else. Just don't act on it. Uh, one prominent pastor in the PCA, he's no longer in the PCA, say, said that if a, a, a gay couple had come to him that was married and come to his church, the goal, the end goal, would not be to separate the marriage. It would just be to desexualize the relationship. In other words, they could stay married in his mind, live as a married couple. They just couldn't do the physical act as if marriage is only a physical act. And so, you know, the, the, these views exist. And it begins with deciding whether or not the Word of God is clear on these things. And so, yeah, that's my take on Fosdick's Shall the Fundamentalists Win? I think the main takeaway, again, to be a broken record is I know we're not facing inerrancy issues. I get that. I agree with Harry Reader that this is about the sufficiency of Scripture, that Scripture is, 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 they're saying it's not enough. We need other social science and other 
avenues, and, and you see that in the modernist controversy. Well, that exists now too. And I would say it's also the perspicuity of Scripture, that Scripture is really, is it really clear on that issue? You know, it sounds like the garden, right? Did God really say, did you really get that right? I know he, he, you heard him say, but what did he mean, you know? And, uh, and so that's going on there. But what I really wanted us to hear in this, uh, this sermon by Fosdick was the tactics, the methods, you know, it began with the fundamentalists are bringing this controversy, right? This morning we are to think of the fundamentalist controversy, which threatens to divide the American churches. So it's, it's not those who have new views that are dividing the church. It is those who are trying to uphold the old views. They're the threats to the unity in the church. And you get that, right? That's that, that is happening now. There's a mood. There's a, an argument for tolerance and can't we coexist now, again, the issues are different. We've said that a million times. I, I'm sick of saying it myself. But then also this appeal to unity and love and charitableness. As if, good, yeah, I agree. We, we, we need to have unity, love, and charitableness. That doesn't mean we sacrifice truth. It's not a false dichotomy. Uh, this, this idea that what's really important is salvation and Jesus and God, but then focusing on messages that are different than that. This theme that what's going on in the culture makes it impossible for people in the culture to accept the gospel. All these themes are, are running through this. Uh, that we can't win the world with these positions. So, anyway, I've gone way too long. and uh, But I look forward to hopefully next week doing uh, Machen's Christianity and liberalism for the hundred year anniversary of that publication where he responds to this mindset. Again, Fosdick and Machen become the poster children for each side. Fosdick with his sermon, but he, uh, he certainly spoke on this quite a bit. And then Machen spoke on it prolifically, but he, but his, uh, his lectures to, I was told ruling elders became the book Christianity and liberalism. So with that, this is George Sayor signing off. Until next time on the Presbyterian and Reformed Churchmen. And listen, if, if this podcast channel is a blessing to you, a help to you, share it with other ruling elders. Uh, my goal is to help provide resources and to apprise people of conversations that are going on and to encourage ruling elders in their walks and ministries, in their lives, and in the church. Also, like the channel, like the podcast, follow the podcasts on wherever you follow podcasts. Um, that way, uh, it'll help it be found easier. Have a good day.